0: Good morning Highlands family, happy Daylight Savings Day. I know everyone's super excited about that and super pumped to lose an extra hour of sleep. Just know that today you have been given extra grace, uh, extra mercy that the Lord is just pouring upon you. If you feel like you need to go get that extra cup of coffee, treat yourself. Just go get it caffeine up. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great. You're going to have an awesome day. Uh, we are starting in on a brand new series, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about this series, uh, and it's called Like Drops of Blood. Now, some of you may be coming into this room, and uh, you are, uh, you know, ready for the Easter season. Like, you're pumped about it. And, uh, you know, with the Easter season typically comes uh, bunny rabbits in sunshine and blue and pink colors and happiness and joy and all of these things that just kind of fill the, the Easter season. And obviously that's not what Easter is about, but culturally that's just kind of what fills our Easter season. And then you come to church after losing an hour of sleep and you enter into this room and uh, the sermon series is titled, Like Drops of Blood. And you're like, how does that, like, where did we get that? Like, how did you get to that point where we are now calling this sermon series something about blood? It just seems a little bit intense. Uh, It seems a little heavy handed for us to do this in church during this season. Now, we were very strategic in this. We uh, believe that this is going to be a great series, uh, but there is some depth behind what we are gonna be searching for. And over the next few weeks, as we look at some of these texts, there's some awesome things that are gonna pop out from these texts. Um, But we purposefully pointed out and wanted to title this series like Drops of Blood because in Jesus' suffering, in his pain, in the things that he is going to go through, we are going to see the cross highlighted and enunciated in a way that we wouldn't if we just bypassed it. See, suffering, death are inevitable human experiences. And in the Western culture, we're prone to just kind of move away from it. We don't want to experience it. We don't want to see it. We want to just kind of uh, bypass it completely. And bringing it up can bring feelings of maybe annoyance or frustration, pain. It feels weird for us to kind of sit on it. But what we see throughout the Bible is that God and Jesus himself are consistently pointing us to remember pain, to remember suffering, specifically with the cross, to understand why and how Jesus experienced death on our behalf. And by highlighting it, we see something that we wouldn't have seen before. In 2004, uh, there was a movie, Called The Passion of the Christ uh, that came out uh, in theaters. And uh, to date myself a little bit, I was 11 years old um, when that movie came out. Um, So that could be either positive or negative to you. You take it whichever way you want. Uh, But I was 11 years old. And I remember around the church and in youth ministry and stuff. it was very, very popular to talk about this movie because it was known by critics and by people that praised it to be a very, very graphic movie. Like there was a lot of people that that saw it or knew that it was coming up and they were like, man, this movie is maybe overly too intense um, or it was uh, you know, just right in some people's mind because it kind of encapsulated what happened to Christ. But I remember as an 11-year-old going and, and seeing this movie and number one, being shocked that my parents were gonna let me go see this movie because uh, it was rated R and it was like the first rated R movie. And as an 11-year-old uh, homeschooled student, I just was kind of like, uh, I, I feel awkward about going to the theater in this moment. And then two, I remember uh, it being very scary. Like, and and maybe I'm just, I don't know, very, like, sensitive. But I just remember this movie being super, super intense. Like, there is a scene in which uh, there's just multiple weird scenes. Like, there's scenes of all these, like, scary kids and stuff. And there's this one scene where uh, Jesus is getting, like, brutalized, he's getting flogged, and it's really kind of showing you how Jesus underwent the flogging and the beatings that he received. And I remember um, this in that scene, Satan is kind of making uh, his way through the crowd, and he's kind of just slowly making his way through, and as he's doing so, he's holding a baby, and the baby's, like, kind of caressing his face, but the baby's, like, abnormally large, and it, and Satan is kind of looking very ghoulish and stuff, and I just remember that being like super, super creepy and like kind of closing my eyes. And as Satan is kind of making his way around, the baby turns around and it's like this uh, old man baby. It's like, it was like the weirdest, most shocking, most creepy, like as an 11 year old, that stuck with me for the rest of my life. Like I was rewatching that recently and I'm like, this is horrifying. This is so, like, how did I, I don't know. I don't, don't know how I made it through that experience, but I just remember being so freaked out in that moment, and uh, that stuck with me for the rest of my life. On top of that, more importantly, um, the movie accomplished what it was looking for in terms of visualizing and showing um, not only the horrors that could have surrounded the spiritual world and all the things that happened and scared me half to death, but it also showed how just brutal and deep The pain and suffering of what Christ experienced on the cross actually was. And it could have been actually one of the first times since the actual death of Jesus that we were able to actually visualize what it may have been like. But that movie brought a certain amount of depth, it brought a certain amount of experience. And I'm not saying, and I'm not here to advocate for Mel Gibson and his theological standing. And I'm not even saying necessarily you should go watch that movie. But what happened in that movie was that it showed us the pain of the cross. And then by looking at the pain of the cross, we were able to understand the depth of the cross. And that's what we wanna experience in this next three weeks. It will be deep. There are moments where it will be hard, intense, difficult, But the more and more that we study the true sacrifice of the cross, the more and more we will understand the true nature of the cross. And so this week, we begin this series as we head into that story. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. This is the beginning of Luke's uh, account of what is called the passion narrative. uh, And it is Jesus heading up To his death, his mind is dead set on what he's about to accomplish. He knows this is about to happen and he is pushing forward. Now, a little bit of context. Jesus is teaching in the uh, temple throughout the day and then at night, he goes to the Mount of Olives and he essentially spends time with the Lord and time with his disciples and he's doing that every single day. The religious rulers of the time are listening to him teaching and they've already had experiences with him up until this point and they are getting frustrated. Like they're done with Jesus and what he is saying because it's counterintuitive to everything that he believes or that they believe and what they have to say. And so they're looking for a way to kill him. And that's what it says in verse one. Look what it says. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. So the chief priests, the religious rulers, the Pharisees are looking for a way to kill Jesus. And a kind of ceremony, a holiday, a ritual springs up in Israelite culture. And they see kind of an avenue to be able to go kill Jesus because of the stuff that is happening around them. Now, I wanna, we're gonna focus on the Passover a little bit, but I wanna kind of unpack why they're mentioning the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover in the same sentence. See, Passover was celebrated the ninth of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And we read this in Exodus chapter 12. Lowell came up and he read kind of what was happening in that account earlier in the service. And while the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated the exodus journey as well as the beginning of harvest season, Leviticus chapter 23 talks about this as well. So the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover were linked together. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread kind of kicked everything off and then the Passover was kind of the culmination of that celebration. The only thing that we have in our culture that would be somewhat akin, if you will, to this uh, is if we were to take Independence Day, the 4th of July, and our celebration of freedom from Britain and Thanksgiving, and all the great things that come with Thanksgiving, the gratefulness and thankfulness that we have, and paired them together into one ultimate week and holiday. Now, I'm not going to focus on this too much, but that sounds like an insanely amazing holiday to pair 4th of July and Thanksgiving together. Like, I can't even imagine how terrifying yet fun that would be. Like, people would be taking just turkeys, stuffing them with fireworks and then launching them into this, like knowing us in America, we would just be prone to just do that all over the place and it'd just be insane. But it would be something that would take over the nation. Like everyone would wanna celebrate this. Everyone would want to experience this. Everyone would know about this week in which we celebrated Independence Day and Thanksgiving and everyone would be all about it. In the same way, the Israelites understand this is the week in which we commemorate what God had freed us from, and we thank him for the way that he has given us new life. So the chief priests are going through this season. They're looking for a way to be able to kill Jesus, and then something falls right into their laps in verse three. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him uh, to them when the crowd was not present. So let's kind of look at this situation. Let's look at Judas specifically in this text. Judas in our day and age, Judas Iscariot, that name, as soon as we hear it, immediately we think betrayer. Like it's kind of synonymous in our culture with Benedict Arnold, that, uh, that traitor, that betrayer type. You may even use that in some phrases and stuff to be able to label someone as a betrayer. We immediately know that he has betrayal kind of written into this story because we know the end of the story. But the people during this time would not have thought that. They would have just saw a apostle uh, within Jesus' friend group and they wouldn't have thought that he was just some betrayer. He is going out of his way. He is filled with an intent of sin to go against Jesus, to go against his purpose, to be able to betray him, and to ultimately end up bringing about what the religious rulers of the time wanted to bring about, and that was Jesus's death. And it says in this text that Satan enters into Jesus. As we explored a few weeks ago, The way that the the demonic world and the spiritual realm works is that it's not necessarily that like Satan all of a sudden like latched on to Judas and Judas was just kind of this innocent bystander and then all of a sudden he's betraying Jesus. He doesn't even know how he got there. No, Judas had invited through a long period of time Satan's influence into his life and it opened the door to the point where Satan found an avenue and used Judas as a tool to be able to accomplish what he inevitably wanted, and that was the death of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know necessarily for sure how Judas got to this point, how he opened himself up to Satan and allowed this to happen in his life, but we can make some guesses and we can see some things from the text that would lead us to a conclusion. In the Gospel of John, Um, it actually states that Judas was the treasurer for the disciples. He's the one that like was over the money bag. Whenever they received funds and stuff, he was the one that was watching over it. But John also notes that he was a thief, that as he looks back on the story and looks back at Judas's life, he looks at how he was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer, but he used to actually skim a little bit off for himself and hold it to his own. So It's interesting to me, and I don't wanna put the disciples down too much because I think they're great men and um, I think sometimes they get a little bit of a bad rap, but it's interesting to me that when they're trying to figure out who the treasurer is, and they may not have known this, but when they're trying to figure out who the treasurer is, they were like, Judas, Judas, That guy right there, because apparently he's the great one who has the ability to be able to be over the finances right now. And apparently they didn't do a deep enough dive on his resume or something. Anyway, it's just interesting to me that, that Jesus, in his providence, knowing who Judas was, allowed him to be the treasurer, which is just in and of itself a sermon. But it's interesting to me how Judas, through time, became this person that was known as a thief. And most likely, we don't know it for sure because we don't have Judas' background, but most likely he had a heart that was intent on wealth, fame, and power, and greed, and all of these issues that just kind of instilled in him. And what we can believe and what we can, we can kind of surmise from this story is that most likely Judas saw Jesus And he heard about Jesus and believed that he was the king that was to come. But he saw Jesus as this man that was ultimately going to establish a kingdom and authority and rule. And he would get rid of the Roman power completely. And so if he can hitch on his life to this man, maybe this man, Jesus, would be able to give him enough power and authority and wealth. He saw Jesus as a means to an end. He didn't want Jesus, he wanted the things that Jesus could give him. And it's interesting because Judas, like though we may look at him as the betrayer, Judas was with Jesus his entire ministry. He sat with him, talked with him, embraced him, in Luke, it actually says that he was commissioned, he was one of the 12 to be commissioned by Jesus to go do works of ministry, revoke demons out from people, preach the gospel and perform miracles. He did all those things. He, he was with Jesus all the time. He did works for Jesus all the time. Colin Smith, a, a commentator on this situation, says that with Judas' own eyes, he saw the clearest evidence. With his own ears, he heard the finest teaching. With his own feet, he followed the greatest example. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus. What does Judas in a situation show us? It shows us that no matter how much ministry involvement, no matter how much success that we have in our relationship with the Lord, we are prone to wander. We have a tendency in our hearts to be able to walk away from him. And it's not about what we do, but who we see Jesus as. We could be the greatest communicator since Billy Graham. We could do greater works than Mother Teresa. We can be the ultimate Awana star that is just placed as a spectacle for everyone to be able to see and memorize books of the Bible, and those are all awesome things. But if we believe that that fame and that popularity or the accolades that come with it are greater than Christ, then we've missed the point. And we're all prone to do so. We may look down on Judas in this moment and think, like, how how terrible of a person was he? I would never do that. I would never be like that. All of our hearts are prone to want what Jesus can give us and not who Jesus is. My heart is prone to that. Your heart is prone to that. We all can understand and know where Jesus is at. And Judas betrays Jesus because he wanted the things that Jesus could give him, not who Jesus was. Does your heart want Jesus or the things of Jesus that he could give you? Judas ultimately places his mindset on betraying Jesus. He accepts the money and he goes forward in this. And in verse seven, we see they all gather together. Judas actually rejoins back with the disciples. And we see in verse seven, it says this, that then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So... I've always wondered, as I've looked at this story and I've encountered this story in the Gospels, like how did the disciples know that this was the guy, like this was the one? Like wouldn't you think that as they walk into the city, they're kind of strolling around, they would see like a bunch of men carrying water jugs and they'd be like, okay, we're going to choose whichever one, that guy right there, he may be the one. I always felt like maybe Jesus and the disciples kind of took someone's room reservation or something like that, and they kind of uh, may have messed up in some way. But Jesus knows what he's doing, and I trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. And uh, this is marked, or this is important, and the reason why Jesus uh, puts this forward is because men back in the day would not have necessarily carried a water jug. This man was doing something that was out of their custom. They typically would have been a small leather sack. And so Jesus, in his providence, says, this man is going to be doing something different, carrying a water jug, go to that man. This is particular, this is special. Jesus is doing it because he doesn't wanna be seen. He knows his death is coming. And so they, this man leads them to where they will have the Passover, the Passover, like we read earlier, once again, is a celebration and a remembrance of how and when God freed the Israelites from slavery. Essentially, there was this final plague in which the Israelites were finally freed and the, uh, there was the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. But if you had the, the blood of an unblemished lamb across the top of the, your door, you would be passed over and not experience the punishment. So the Israelites celebrated this every single year by doing things and and bringing up reminders in a particular meal. A few of the things that they would have on the table is bitter herbs. The the bitter herbs would recall the bitterness of slavery. The salt water that they would have at the table. Remember the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. The main course, the lamb, was the sin-bearing sacrifice on their behalf. And Jesus says, this is the meal that I am going to show something brand new. Jesus chooses this Passover meal, this moment, very providentially, to reveal something brand new. Look at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to him, and he said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is taking the Passover meal and the elements that are within the Passover meal, and he is bringing about a new meal, in which there is a new message that he is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. No longer are they going to sacrifice in the way they had before. He is the new sacrifice once and for all. And if you think of this message, it's actually kind of a a weird moment, if you really think about it. Like, if you look at this story, it's kind of strange what Jesus is communicating right now. He's literally standing up in front of them and saying, drink my blood, eat my body. That's kind of strange. And I think that sometimes we can put our church lens on it, especially if you've been in church for a while like me, and we can kind of look at it and bypass that completely. But he's making a really kind of weird and big statement. In fact, the early church, when they were interacting with Rome at the time, the Roman culture that surrounded them actually kind of came up with this conspiracy theory that the the early Christians were cannibals because they heard that they were eating bodies and drinking blood. Now, obviously, that was just kind of, they made that up on their own. It was one of the reasons why they ended up persecuting the Christians was because they were able to kind of make them seem very strange and kind of secluded on their own. But this is kind of weird. This is a strange thing, but Jesus is using these things in this imagery to portray to us a new idea that is absolutely, insanely grace-filled and life-changing, He's saying that that this bread that he has in front of him, this physical bread, is a representation of his body. And the fact that he will be beaten on our behalf, He he will experience suffering that we don't have to experience anymore because he had experience. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood which is poured out in the same way that they would take the lamb, they would cut it, and the the blood would be poured out on their behalf. He is saying that that is his blood as well. And then he is saying to follow in, this footsteps to drink in remembrance of him. And this is what we call now today communion. And we're gonna partake in it today. Is Jesus saying that this is his body, this is his blood, drink it, remember it, just like you remember Passover, just like you remember the way that I saved you, in the same way, remember that I am the new salvation. His blood, just like the lamb's blood that was poured out, his blood is poured out over your sin. His blood is poured out over lack of self-control. His, his blood is poured out over addiction. His blood is poured out over anxiety, over fear, over anything and everything that you have in your life. Jesus' blood is poured out for you. And no longer, no longer do we have to do this every single year, but now it is once and for all for anybody, anybody with, a, with any background, any ethnicity, any race, Anyone that has any issue or problem may come and have their life completely and utterly drenched and washed clean by the blood of the lamb. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is reiterated. It says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifice they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would have no longer any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then verse 10 says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for." all time. It's accomplished. That is why it is his blood. It covers us in the same way that the bulls and the lambs and the animals would have been sacrificed on our behalf. Jesus is sacrificed. But this is the one, this is the sacrifice that actually saves. And Jesus says, remember this. Take the cup, take the bread, spend time remembering. So what is our posture? As we head into communion and we experience this throughout, not just today, but even days forward, how do we experience this? What are we to do? And I think the main idea of this particular text is that in the Lord's Supper, we empty ourselves to be filled with God's Spirit. In the Lord's Supper, we empty ourselves to be filled with God's Spirit. And when I say empty ourselves, I mean, we are being humbled. We are taking up humility. We remember who we truly are. We remember that we're not God, that we don't have the ability to be able to, be, to, to enter into the sacrifice on our own, that we need his blood. We need his body. And by that and that alone, it is accomplished. When we take the Lord's Supper, it humbles us. Because it's a reminder. It's a reminder that we need nourishment. We need food and drink. It's a reminder that we need consistent reminders because we easily forget. It's a reminder that we need to slow down and contemplate because we can tend to go and do. It's a reminder that we need a savior because our sin and our habits separate us from God. It's a reminder that we need a sacrifice and we have the inability to save ourselves without his blood. With communion comes humility because it reveals to us who we truly are and who God truly is. But we easily forget that. The disciples in this story, they easily forget that. If you look at uh, verse 21, it's very interesting what happens here. It says verse 21, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as, as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue with themselves which one of them it would could be that was going to do it. And then a dispute also arose among them about who would be considered the greatest. So Jesus in the story, this is just a weird, let's set this up and really look at this. Jesus has just told them, my blood's going to be shed like the sacrificial lambs once and for all. My body is going to be sacrificed on your behalf and beaten once and for all. And they would have been sitting around in kind of like an open square-like thing. They'd be able to see everybody in the circle. They all would have been able to kind of feel what's going on in the room. And Jesus, after he says this, they get done with that moment. Jesus looks around at them and says, one of you will betray me. And, one, and and that person is in the room. And woe to that person who does betray me. All of these guys are probably looking around at each other like, this is awkward, right? Like you probably could have cut the tension of this moment with a knife. They had to have been just kind of like, staring at one another like, okay, who's it going to be? And they're probably ready for someone to admit it in that moment. Like Judas has to be shifting in his seat like crazy. They they don't know what's about to happen. And I imagine, and this is, Extra from the Bible. This is just my own thought process, so take it for what it is. You don't have to take it at all. But I imagine Peter, because Peter always comes up with stuff, and he always seems to be the first one to talk, no matter what. He talks very fast, and he's always saying things. Peter probably all of a sudden pops up, and he's like, "Well, Jesus, I would never betray you. I would never do such a thing because you know, I I saw you uh, at the Transfiguration, so I have to have some sort of status." Um, I was the first one to admit that you were the son of God. So uh, probably not me, right? Like, that's not me. And I also, I help out all the time. I do a lot of really good things. I'm always talking with the people. So like, I think I'd be good. But Bartholomew sitting over there is kind of looking suspicious right now. And I mean, when we were passing out the 5,000 loaves, I, where was he? He was nowhere to be found. In fact, he came in for the meal. He wasn't even helping during the, the uh, actual passing out of the meal. He wasn't even doing any of the heavy lifting. And, and I'm not gonna do this all day because I could just do this all day. But, but I imagine that this conversation just continues to just evolve and evolve and devolve and devolve. And, and it just gets to this point where they're just like all talking about their accomplishments and stuff. And they're like, hypothetically, Jesus, like hypothetically, like if you were, if we were playing kickball and you were team captain, who, who would you choose first overall? Who would, you, who would you choose last, right? Like, and Jesus just has to be sitting there just like, what is going on? Like he has to be so frustrated, They miss the point entirely. They completely just were like, like he had this big moment with them. They have this great last supper. He's about to die. And they're just like, well, we forgot about that. It just, they bypass it completely. And they start talking about all the great things that they had done. Who's the greatest in heaven? And I think we can poke fun at the way that they did that and, and all that kind of stuff. But in all honesty, though we may not do it as explicitly and with other people in the room and all this kind of stuff, as dramatically, in our own hearts and in our own lives, we have a tendency to bypass that moment in communion because we don't want to have to empty ourselves. We want to be able to show God all the great things that we've done. We have a lot going on in our life. In fact, in the moment of communion, we have a tendency to fill ourselves with ourselves and then completely forget the moment of communion and its importance and its significance completely. Completely. Like in the moment of communion, we have a tendency to to, to sit there and as soon as it's served to us, we immediately um, enter into a time of prayer and then we begin to think about our calendars. We think about all the to-do lists that we have, all the home projects, all the work stuff that we have, all of it just begins to fill our mind and by the time we're done with communion, we just kind of bypass that whole moment. Maybe we sit down for communion, we begin to kind of pray and then we kind of start looking around the room and we see other families and we're like, critiquing them, we're upset with this person, we don't really like that person. Um, Maybe we're looking at other people and we're like, man, I wish I had that family. I wish my kids were like this. I wish that my life was like this. And we have a tendency to bypass the moment because we're looking around at relationships and things that we want, not what God has given us. We have a tendency to um, maybe speed through the moment because God is bringing up different sins and things that are in our life that he wants us to confess and give over to him. Things that we've held on very, very tightly. And he's asking us, hey, give this over to me. And we just kind of speed through that moment because we don't want to have to confess any of it. Much like the disciples, we're so filled with ourselves that we forget the importance of that moment and what's happening. The Lord's Supper, communion, is a reminder of who we are not and a reminder of who God is. Humble yourself. Confess admit you need the blood and the punishment on your behalf. He has come to give you brand new life. He wants you as you are, not the cleaned up version of who you think you should be. Sit, allow him to be with you in that moment. Jesus, as he's probably processing this moment and dealing with the disciples, kind of moving around this moment, shows a, an insane amount of grace and uh, humility and kindness to the disciples in the way that he answers them. And it actually kind of shows us how we can kind of enter into a posture of humility as well. It says this in verse 25. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority, um, who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who served. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed me a kingdom. And then you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says, you want to experience me? You want to know me? You want to have life? You want to be able to grow in your relationship with the Lord? Be like me. In the way that I have humbled myself, I came not to be served, but serve. Follow in my footsteps. Be the least. Be the youngest. Humble yourself and take my example." Charles Spurgeon, a very famous pastor, had a great quote uh, about this topic. He said that king of kings is a title full of majesty, but servant of servants is the name which our Lord preferred when he was here below. Highlands, if we wanna be able to grow and commune with God, be with him, we should follow in his footsteps, become a servant of servants, humble ourselves. And when we take communion We should hold this posture as we enter into it. This morning, we're gonna take communion and we're gonna actually be in this moment. And a helpful way to be able to kind of orient yourself to humility, to kind of take on this posture that Jesus is talking about and being the least and following his footsteps and being a servant of servants is by doing three things, thinking on three things in uh, communion. Number one, to dwell on the past. And when I'm saying to, to look at uh, the past and to dwell on God's past or the, the past that, that he has, I'm not saying that you just create a list of all the bad things that you have done and then just like dwell on that consistently. I'm talking more like look at all the things that God had accomplished all throughout the Bible. Look at all the things that he has done, the mighty works that he has done, and then look at the way that he has been faithful to you in the past and the ways that he has helped you and the ways that he has grown you. Dwell on his work in the past. Then look at his provision in the present. The the blood or the the cup and the bread remind us that we need nourishment, that God provides that for us. That's one element to all of this. And I believe that um, the more and more that we dwell on the fact that he provides for us and he cares for us in the present and he loves you for who you are right now will help us grow in our relationship with the Lord. And the last thing is that we need to remember the promise of the future, In this text, Jesus points to a day in which we will be able to celebrate the supper together with the Lord in perfection. That there will be a day where we will be completely and utterly sanctified. No more struggle with sin. We'll have the ability to be with him in perfection. And we should dwell on that day. Look to the past, present, and future of what he Accomplished. Use the Lord's Supper to remind you of who he is and who we aren't. We need to empty ourselves to be filled with God's spirit, Reflect on the past, present, and future. As we wrap up and before we head into communion, I just wanna leave you with kind of one last thought. An interesting commentary that I had read on this text um, had this really kind of cool uh, idea that I'd never thought of before. Uh, it's interesting to me, At the beginning of the Bible, when mankind falls and fractures their relationship with the Lord, when Adam and Eve partake in in eating the fruit that God said, do not eat, um, we see that 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 action is them taking and eating. Like the the, the brokenness of the relationship begins by them taking and eating. And they do so without God's presence and without him there. They just kind of do it on their own. Yet, All throughout the Bible, we see that God commands and even provides for people to take and eat in reconciliation with other people and with himself. That whenever something happens, whenever there is a fractured relationship or something broken or a sinful action, God has a tendency to mark that moment of reconciliation with taking and eating. It's almost as if he took the brokenness and the twisted nature of what Adam and Eve did and made it into something brand new and is making it into something brand, brand new. You see it in the way that God provides food for no one in his family after mankind completely rejects him. You see it in the way that God redeems the people of Israel from Egypt and marks it with the food of Passover. You see it in the way that God gives and sustains the people of Israel and the, the wilderness with manna. Jesus throughout the New Testament uses meals to join together his disciples and provide for people who followed him. Revelation tells us once again that the end of all time, perfection will be monumented with Christ returning, taking back his people and the final marriage supper of the lamb, marking the fact that we have entered into perfect peace with him where humanity broke a relationship with God and taking and eating, Jesus is reconciling and redeeming our relationship with God by taking and eating. Communion is a symbol of God's grace and mercy on our life. It's also a moment in which he is showing a very visual illustration to you that he loves you. He's here to reconcile a relationship with you. He is here to redeem you He has given you a seat at the table to have community and fellowship with the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, creator of the world. And that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you did last week or what you're going to do, he still accepts you as his daughter, as his son, and invites you into a relationship with him. That's what we mark in communion. So as we take communion, I beg you to come, sit, humble yourself, see the work that God has done, embrace his character, know that he has given you a seat at the table and remember the work that he accomplished. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the moment that we're about to enter into. And I thank you for this reminder. I pray that you help us Help me to humble myself as we take communion, as we reflect on the things that you have done. May we, re- we remember that we can't accomplish salvation on our own behalf, that we need you, that your blood covers us, and the sacrifice that you made was a sacrifice on our behalf. May we cling to you with everything that we have. And may we remember that you have perfect community and fellowship with us. In your name we pray. Amen.